Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me on the show today. Well, some of you or many of you might even be aware that I'm currently writing a book and it's a book on property financing. And it's not just going to be about mortgages, basically. Um, It's going to go a little bit wider and a bit deeper than that. Uh, just to give you a bit of a heads up, it's going to have what I call, it's going to have three sections. Uh, first being institutional finance. So that's kind of buy-to-let mortgages and bridging finance and things like that. But it also goes into alternative finance and creative financing techniques. So I'm going to have a little bit wider, as I say, than many property books. So my head's into that at the moment. And in particular, my head's into a chapter that I, I wrote over the weekend. And I thought I'd share some, not necessarily all, of the segments of that uh, chapter with you. Um, I'm actually looking at it. I'm over 4,000 words, and that's before I have a case study or two to add into it. And the, the theme is really about private financing. Um, and uh, ba- basically, private financing is a form of property financing that's provided by an individual, a partnership, or an entity that's owned and controlled by such people. So in other words, it's not institutions. Usually you're talking to the people directly who make the decisions, or you're very close to them. And so just to give you some examples, it could be you know um, lenders or joint venture partners. Uh, it could also be small companies and partnerships. It could be pension funds, smaller ones such as SIPs and SAS pension funds, family offices and things like that. So you kind of dealing with human beings. That's the key point here. That's the key with private financing. And if you're dealing with a human being, you're you know dealing with them on, on that level. They may have policies and procedures and processes and rules and criteria, etc., that they adhere to. But generally speaking, there's a lot more flexibility. And this is the somewhat something of a holy grail, really, of, um, of property investors and developers is to access private financing. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, the most obvious one, well, there's actually several that probably are quite obvious, but the most obvious one is it allows us to scale. Um, it allows us to have access to financing that we don't ourselves have uh, necessarily. Um, they say that everybody runs out of money at some point. Um, and so it allows us to scale and do more with less in terms of funding. But it also can be quicker. It can give us direct access to decision makers. It can bring additional benefits into our property business. So don't just look at someone who's providing money as only providing money. They could provide other uh, contributions, if you like, to our business, such as skills and contacts and resources. Um, they could play a role in, in, in some of our projects or our business to some extent as well. Um, and I guess, you know, I think the old adage is, you know, computer says no with institutions. Well, does the human being always say no? Could they be persuaded um, to maybe look at something that a uh, standard, you know, business or institution wouldn't look at? So lots and lots of reasons, really. 
So I'm going to whiz you through some of the components of, uh, of what I've been thinking about to put this chapter together, just to give you a bit of an insight and a flavor, but without revealing everything. Uh, it's just a bit of a teaser because uh, probably around about Easter, this book is going to be available um, for you to, to look at. So um, basically, private financing breaks down into two main areas, trying to keep it simple. You've got debt on the one side and equity on the other side. And uh, debt-based private financing is typically in the form of loans, and the returns that are, you know, are paid and received are, are in the form of fixed-rate interest, typically. Now, there's always variations on a theme, but just trying to keep it simple. Um, Equity-based financing, uh, on the other hand, is some kind of profit-share arrangement, typically. Uh, Gain-share, profit-share, um, or you know, capital-gain-share. Capital um, and so the returns by definition will be variable and they'll be based on the success or otherwise of the venture. So you can see there's different types of arrangement there. And then, of course, you've got security, um, which, you know, dovetails into the return. Uh, and that usually varies in line with the agree uh, agreement or arrangement as well. Now, um, there are some rules and, um, you know, compliance things to be aware of, particularly when it comes to equity-based financing. So I'm not going to dive into it too much here. Just be aware there are rules to follow. You can't just tap anybody up and offer them a, a JV, basically. That, that's kind of the rule. Uh, so you have to know them personally as for friends or family. Alternatively, they have to actually qualify, be qualified individuals, such as a high net worth investor, a sophisticated investor, or a business investor. So just look up the, um, the, the Financial Conduct Authority's uh, guidelines on offering joint ventures and equity and profit sharing arrangements, and you're probably going to come across the legislation there. So I think the um, the main the main thing to really cover off here is that I've um, I've kind of developed, if you like, what I call six key areas that need to be considered, kind of regardless of what type of private financing, whether it's debt or equity. So here's the sequence we're going to run through. I'm just going to dip into some elements of this. So with regard to private financing, you've got to look at the project itself. Um, I'll come on to the definition of these things. Um, the parties that are involved. The terms that are, are being made available or, or that are agreed, the security that's that's sought and that is provided, the advisors uh, involved on both sides, and how you're going to document and uh, I call it the paperwork side of things. How you're going to document things under the paperwork. So that's the that's the process. Um, and what you'll quickly realise is there's an interconnectedness here. So when I talk about projects, you know, it's hard to talk about project without talking about maybe advisors, without maybe talking about the parties, you know, etc. And security comes into the mix as well. So there's an interdependence and interrelationship between all of these different components. So, but to try and keep it simple, I'll walk through. So the first thing to consider is the project itself. Now, the project could be a literally a property project, something we're going to do, but it could also be a collection of different um, projects. It could be for a defined period to do something. It could be for an entire business activity. So the project I'm using is a loose term, but uh, generally speaking, when it comes to property projects, there's, there's kind of four you know, general property projects where private financing would come into play. And uh, that boils down to uh, whether it's a single unit opportunity or a multi-unit opportunity. 
Uh, again, I'm just simplifying. So if it's a single unit opportunity, probably the most obvious thing that you know would allow a private uh, financier or a private investor to get involved would be a flip, buying and selling a property, making a profit. So um, because it's a defined period of time, it's got a clear exit, as they call it, which is the sale. And, uh, and so, you know, typically it works well for both parties. It's not a long tie-in. It could be six, nine, 12 months, for example, to get in and out of a project, take the money in, undertake the project and return the funds uh, after the project's been completed. So a flip is the easiest one to explain. And usually it's a single property, single home that is, um, that's had some sort of value add and, uh, and been resold. There's variations on the theme, obviously. And then a, a variation on that is if you're not going to sell the property, that you're going to retain it. And typically that would be what's called a BRR, buy, refurbish, refinance project. So we're going to keep this project, we're going to add some value to it, we're going to rent it out and, and keep it. And so the investor in this case would be repaid out of the refinancing proceeds. So we need to make sure there's enough money that's going to come out the back end if uh, the property is rented and, and retained. So that's kind of looking at whether it's a single family home or a single property. And then if we look at uh, a multi-unit um, you know, project, <clears throat> that's really what we start to look at development. That could be development with a small d or development with a capital D. And so what I mean there is it could be a house that you split into two flats. Now that's still developing, but it's not a really big project. It's multi-unit because it's two, <laughs> but you know it's not a massive project. And so that would be a natural progression perhaps for somebody who's done a flip. If you've done a flip with a single family you know, home, maybe you can do a title split, convert into two flats and flip that way. Uh, and that would be a buy to sell development uh, project. And of course you can see how this can scale up and you have lots and lots of units that you're you're either converting something into multiple units or you're building from scratch. Build to, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, build to sell um, is, the, is, the, is the watchword there. And just as there is with the single family home, if you're looking at a multi-unit project, you can build to rent as well. So I'm just using slightly different terminology, but basically at heart, we're either flipping the property or you know, renting and ref, um, refinancing the property for single units, build to sell, for you know, multiple uh, flips, in other words, uh, or build to rent for multiple BRRs taking place. And I guess you know many of you would have spotted, of course, that there is a hybrid that is possible. That you know, especially when you're looking at multi-units. So uh, I don't want to reveal too much, but basically you can get paid uh, if you sell some and keep some. So that would be one of the tips. So that's the project itself. And of course, when we're looking at the project, it's really important that. Um, the the investor or developer has the requisite skills, contacts, experience, know-how, track record, etc., to undertake the project. That's something that, from the private finances point of view, they're going to be interested in. Now, I do know that, um, and I, I think I've probably been there myself, where people have put money into a project of mine where I didn't have that much experience. And you know, it's, it's important that you've got ways in which you can protect the downside risk for your finance partner. I'm just going to leave it at that for now. But usually, you know, looking at the project, you, you're looking to match it up to the investor's track record and experience and capabilities. And this is actually one of the reasons, for, actually, that raising private finance as an investor can be a challenge, because you kind of need the experience to attract the private financing. But sometimes without the private financing, you can't get the experience. 
uh, and it's capital intensive um, business, of course, property. So I, I do get that, and it does it does go with the territory. I'm afraid. The second step, though, in the process is the parties that are involved. Now, this might sound very simple. Uh, obviously, if you look at debt financing, you've got a lender and you've got a borrower. They're the parties. One's giving the money, or well, not giving, loaning the money. The other one's uh, repaying the money. And then you just have to, you know, I'm, I'm going to get too far ahead of myself, but you have to work out on what basis they give you the money back. They return the money. But I want to go a little bit further here because... In addition to the parties just having a label like equity partner, joint venture partner, um, lender, etc., I think it's also that it's to define the roles. So it's not just to define the parties, to define their roles. Now, the role might be just a straightforward money in, money out arrangement. That means they're just putting their money in, they're very passive, uh, they might want to know how the project's getting on from time to time, but pretty much they're waiting to get their money back out once the project has been concluded. Well, it could well be the case that they could get involved in different ways. They could play a role in the project. Maybe more than one party brings money to the, to the table, uh, for example. But again, um, I just think it's important that we, we understand who the parties are and what kind of, uh, I'm going to call it a vehicle, um, that is being um, you know, funded. Is it the individual uh, property investor or developer? Is it a company? Is it a special purpose company or special purpose vehicle? So these are some of the factors that need to be uh, taken into consideration um, when you're talking about the, the, the parties that are involved. Um, as I mentioned, there could be more than one party, and so you could end up layering different parties. But I would probably avoid overcomplicating having too many debt providers or equity providers. By all means, maybe have one of each, but maybe having two or three in each can get hellishly complicated. So that's the thing to keep in mind there. The next part of the process is about terms, as I call it. Well, the terms is really the commercial arrangements of the offering, of the arrangement that we're looking to, to get into. And that really boils down to asking some, or answering rather, some key questions. This is the how much, what format, how long, and what kind of return questions. Um, in the book, I'm going into quite a lot of depth and detail here. But essentially, it's like how much for how long, on what basis, and uh, and what kind of returns will I will, will I get it back? So that's the um, that's the terms. It's um, it's you'd be surprised actually. The people's uh, understanding and expectations of returns varies wildly. Uh, it varies wildly based on their um, experience and their their knowledge, but it also varies wildly on their risk profile and their risk appetite. So somebody might say that, oh, you know, um, um, you're offering me 8%. Well, that's too good to be true. Um, well, there must be a catch, that kind of thing. Well, whereas somebody else might say 8%, 8% when I'm taking, I'm putting all the equity capital into this um, and you've got, you know, a heap of debt. There's loads of risk in that. 8% is nowhere near going to compensate me for that. So you can get these, you know, I'm just throwing a percentage out there when I, made, I said 8%, but you, you can just get different opinions, different perspectives. And of course, um, it can't. You know, I can't talk about returns without also talking about security and risk. So they kind of go hand in hand, and yet there's slightly different steps in my process here. So I don't want to get too too ahead of myself. But in terms of returns, they could be a fixed fee or a fixed percentage basis. They could be a, a percentage of profit or a fixed fee return. 
uh, or a variable amount uh, of return. So there's various ways in which you can carve up things. And what I recommend is a bit, bit like of a throwback to last week, actually, I talked about having conversations or having meaningful conversations. Well, it's exactly the same when you're talking with a finance partner is have a meaningful conversation with a finance partner and work out what it is they are looking for. And you actually, if you get, you get to understand whether they're leaning more towards debt financing on a fixed rate basis with a high level of security or alternatively, they're looking for a higher rate of return with higher, higher, you know, um, uh, upside potential, but, you know, maybe take a little bit more of a risk in terms of less security. Um, then maybe the debt financier. So you, you you can quickly work out that there's there's risk appetites and profiles and personalities, financing personalities, literally, that you end up uh, talking to. I, I will share with you one of the tips under this section because it's just one that I, I kind of throw out quite a lot, actually, when I'm talking about private financing. And it's this, and I have a general rule, if you like, and it's the, the closer you are to the source of the financing's heart, the lower the cost of the financing. So I'll say it again, the closer you are to the source of the financing's heart, the lower the cost of the financing. Now, that isn't always true. But, you know, your mum might like you a little bit. She might want you to succeed in your property uh, venture. Um, your, your sister might do. You know, people who are close to you, people who care about you, um, they might want to support you. And so maybe they won't ask for or demand um, such a high level of return than perhaps the hard-nosed, sophisticated, high net worth investor who's got multiple um, fingers in pies, let's say. So it's a general rule. Um, but equally, uh, I think you need to be careful about the opposite of that. So if somebody's offering something that seems too good to be true and they don't really know you and you're trying to figure out why, keep, keep wondering, right? It's not always as what it seems. Okay, so that was, if you like, that was the terms, uh, which is the commercial terms of the arrangement. The next thing then to consider is the security that is available or is on offer. And what you find here is, I've got a diagram in the book, and it really just shows arrows pointing in the opposite direction with security on the one side and reward on the other side. So usually with higher level of security comes a lower level of reward or return and vice versa. So it doesn't always follow that's the case, but usually it does. So somebody who's, who's really secured, you know, I'm going to come on to the types of security, but if they're very heavily secured, well, what is their risk? Um, and so the risk might not be that high. And so therefore, the returns that they're going to receive may also not be that high. It's not as simple as that. It's not just a, a risk reward equation. All, as I mentioned, all of these factors come into play. The the party's risk profile, the terms that are available, the uh, track record of the party uh, of the individuals concerned who are undertaking the developments, all of these things come into, into play. But I do want to divert to say one thing. Um, when people think about return, they normally think about, well, how much will I get on top of what I put in? Okay, and so what I put in is your capital, very simply, and what you get back is your return. So you've got your capital and you've got your return. Doesn't matter what you know else we call them, but that's quite a simple concept. Um, as, I think it's Warren Buffett and Benjamin Graham, etc. They basically say, "Don't risk your capital. Don't risk losing your capital." Well, if you um, if if that resonates with you right now, you're thinking, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, definitely don't want to risk my capital." Then that might put you more in the category of a debt financier. Um, okay, 
because usually with a debt financier, you can take some security, which will give you a degree of protection against your capital being lost. Whereas if you're an equity provider, you put in the equity, you don't usually have a lot of security behind that. You might have some, and I'll talk about some of the types of security that you can have, but it's not as tangible, it's not as realizable as what it might be if you're putting in debt in. So if you find yourself getting a bit twitchy about the potential to lose some or all of your capital, uh, then you might want to steer towards providing debt financing if you're talking to people like me or, or, or other people who are investors and developers. And similarly, if you're concerned about your partner, so from my perspective, looking at my uh, finance partner, if I can sense that they're really risk averse and they're nervous about potential loss of capital, I might steer them down the debt route rather than the equity route. They may prefer the upside rewards that come with equity, but actually I'll be doing them a favor by putting, pushing them down the camp of maybe protecting some of that downside loss of capital risk. So that's just something to keep in mind. I think another thing that comes into the equation here is what I call the funding stack. So the funding stack, just to picture for a moment um, a pyramid uh, in front of you, which breaks down into three segments. So you've got the base of the pyramid, the middle part of the pyramid, and the top of the pyramid. So the funding stack really is looking at, well, you know, at the bottom, it's much more stable, and that's where there's high level of security that's available, and usually accompanied by lower levels of return. Now, if we move up the pyramid, we can see things, you know, the, the, the shape obviously is narrowing as we get towards the peak. And in the middle, we get medium security and medium returns. And at the top, we get low or even no security and higher returns. So what you find is you've got debt at the bottom and you've got equity at the top. And this middle section is usually what they call mezzanine. It's called mezzanine because it bridges the two. Uh, it bridges the bottom with the top. And so mezzanine is usually some form of uh, quasi-debt, quasi-equity. Um, there could be some security then, you know, uh, attached to it. So um, that's why it's called mezzanine. It's another level that sits between debt and equity in particular. But I did talk about security. I'm just going to literally rattle through, not necessarily describe them. I'm going to rattle through some of the types of security that might be available um, to discuss with your private financing partner. So first, most of us will be familiar with the concept of a first charge. That's typically buy-to-let mortgage territory. If you go for a buy-to-let mortgage, the lender will ask for a first charge. And that means they're first in line. If anything goes wrong, they can take the property back, they can sell it, and they can get repaid. And that's why you know a lot of people are really hung up on getting a first charge. Well, first of all, a first charge isn't the be-all and end-all. Um, but obviously, if you are risk averse or you're worried about that loss of capital, then you might want to take a first charge. Um, so going down the list, though, we have some alternatives that we could talk about. And there's some merits in some of the alternatives. So there's a second charge. Well, it stands behind the first charge. You'd probably be able to work that out. Then we could have a debenture. So the thing with the charge is it's against a specific asset, whereas a debenture is usually uh, against a company's assets in total. Uh, I don't want to get too too deep into it, but they can have what's called a fixed charge or a floating charge um, when it comes to a company. And then you've got things like a de declaration of trust, which is sometimes called a deed of trust. And that differentiates the beneficial ownership from the legal ownership of an asset, or obviously in this case, a property. You can have shares in a company. 
you can take guarantees and you can take guarantees from multiple places. You can take guarantees from people and from companies, for example. And then there's something called cross-collateralization, which is not easy to say at the time I'm recording this. Um, and that's really about taking alternative types of um, assets uh, to support a loan. So not just linking it to one form of security, but maybe taking different forms of security, linking to different assets without getting too into it. And there could be some other indirect security, for example, restrictions on title, um, option agreements. They fall into that kind of category. So I'm not going to go into it too much, but just signpost you to, to that when it comes to um, looking at security. The next section really is all about uh, advisors. Now, I've got a section on advisors because a lot of people don't, don't take any advice. They don't get people involved. Now, there is a cost, obviously, um, to bringing people onto your team. Uh, and I've highlighted at least three uh, main categories and then some, I've, I'll call it the others as well. So we've got financial advisors, legal advisors, and tax advisors. And then within the other categories, you, these really, really are specialists. They could be architects, they could be planning consultants, they could be surveyors, for example. Uh, but primarily, you'd be looking at financial advisors, legal advisors, and tax advisors. Now, if you just went out and got one of each of them, just because you want them uh, to have them on your team, and you start talking about an agreement that you know you're going to have with a property investor or developer, um, and you go to your financial advisor, you go to your legal uh, well, your solicitors, effectively, and you go to your tax advisor, well, you might find there's a bill that's ratcheting up pretty quickly and getting out of hand. So it is a case of you know doing things you know in in proportion and in scale to the to the you know, arrangement that you've got ahead of you. So don't get carried away, but, you know, and, and, you know, it also depends on your own level of sophistication. Uh, if you're used to uh, investing and investments and reading contractual terms and that sort of thing, as I kind of am, and I was trained in financial services, then, you know, I'm, I'm more, you know, comfortable advising myself <laughs> from a financial point of view and to some degree a tax point of view. Um, and I understand some of the basics of the, of the legals, but I still have a solicitor that, you know, help, helps me on, uh, on my agreements. So have the right advice. And um, as the old adage say, says, um, free advice is worth every penny. So yes, do expect to pay something um, for having right people around you, but they can protect you and they can protect the downside risk. So it's always worth having. And then the final step in this particular process that I wanted to outline is uh, what I call the paperwork. And that's really how you're going to document things. And this is where a lot of things come unstuck. I, mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I can have a conversation with my wife, for example, and later on we could try and recall the conversation and we both have a slightly different version of events. And we just sat down, we had dinner, we watched the TV program, we discussed something. And then we, we try and come back later and, and just recall what, what it is we discussed or what, what it is we agreed. And we might have a slightly different perspective or recollection of events. And the only way we could resolve that, not that we do this at home, <laughs> um, would be to write it down. Write it down and show it to the other person and go, is that what you understood? Oh, well, actually, no, it's not. I said this. Oh, okay, let's change it and make it right. So that's the point, really, of having things written down is to avoid confusion at the very basic level, but it's also to avoid dispute and it's also to give adequate protection to all the parties. So always, always, always commit what you've agreed to writing 
even if it is your mum who's giving you the money, even if it is your sister. So, um, you know, we, nobody wants to go to a court of law, um, but it's there to protect us. So in my agreements, I, I also go you know, quite wide. I talk about the consequences of things going wrong. I thought I, work, I, I cover things like, well, what if we don't agree? You know, if this is a joint venture agreement, what if we don't agree? Uh, what we're going to do in that situation? How long uh, is uh, uh, the the project going to last for? And what if it overruns? What will we do in that situation? So, there's a bunch of things that uh, I, I do cover off in my agreements, and um, you know, generally speaking, just everything is is committed into writing. So, I think we talked at the top of the conversation about well, why use or indeed provide private financing? Well, I mentioned, didn't I, really that. Uh, everyone will run out of capital at some point. That's on the uh, investor developer side. And on the um, provider, the financing side, well, you can get a return on your money, which is maybe a bit better than leaving it in the bank. Uh, maybe it's an alternative to an alternative uh, form of investing. Maybe you can get involved in a project uh, in some degree and learn as you get along and observe how things go. Um, they often say that selling shovels is, you know, makes more money than digging for gold. Well, you know, providing finance is the shovels. So um, some people make more money out of providing finance than they do from actually undertaking the projects. So I think, um, you know, partnerships and financing uh, is it, commonplace in most businesses. All businesses usually have some form of capital put in there. It doesn't always come from the founders. So, you know, taking an investment is, is, is a very common activity. And so it is in property as well. We just need to make sure that we do it in the correct way. And that's why I've talked about this six-step process so that things are properly covered off and everybody's adequately protected and they go in with their eyes open. So um, basically, there's lots of ways. The Holy Grail allows you to grow and to scale, allows other people to get involved in, in property, maybe at more of an arm's length without getting their, um, their, you know, without rolling their sleeves up, if you like. And um, they could even get involved depending on the arrangement. And I guess, you know, where would you go to pri find private finance? Well, I'm not going to give it all away. It's all in the book. But I will say this. Many people go to property meetings looking to raise money for their property projects. And I'm going to say to you, that's the wrong place to look. Um, I would suggest that in most property meetings, whether it's online or face-to-face, -face, that probably maybe two out of 100 people in the room were looking, actively looking to uh, put money into property investors in their projects. So in other words, you've got 98 people looking at the two. So what are the odds? <laughs> what are the odds of being successful in raising private finance in that situation? And I know that people do it um, and you hear about that and people even sell courses about that. Uh, go to property meets and present yourself and you, know, you can raise a load of money. But I'm just playing the odds. So in other words, the best place to go is not property meetup. It's actually where people with money hang out, basically. Um, and that could also be property meetups. I understand that. But because there's a lot of us looking for, it's the holy grail, don't forget, of, uh, of, of being in properties to raise private financing, then there's a lot of us, there's a lot of eyeballs really trying to find the two and wondering if we're going to be the one that they choose to put their money in, if we can convince them. So in other words, go, go elsewhere. I list a number of places um, in the in the in the book. You have to just wait for that, won't you? But I've mentioned it on one or two other occasions as well, and I'm giving you a few tips there as well.
So there we go. I'm not going to go into too much more of it. Um, there's a lot in there, but I just wanted to give you a bit of a flavor. And I think the main thing I really wanted to cover off today was this principle of the, the funding stack, which is quite simple, hopefully to understand, but those six steps in the process. And that's really what I wanted to get over because I think um, if you're a recipient of private finance or if you're a provider of private finance, if you go through those six um, key areas, then you're not going to go too far off the path. So you can have a sensible conversation. You can work out what it is you want. You can work out what it is you, you are able to offer. And then you can present that to the other side. There's a lot of things that you can debate and discuss, obviously, but you can find an agreement that works for everybody, hopefully, get it documented, get on with your project, and make sure you look after that private financier's funds, treat them well, treat them better than your own. That's what I do, actually. I have a mantra. I treat my finance partner's funds better than I treat my own. And, uh, and that usually means they come back, of course. They get their money back, and they come back, and they reinvest. So that's it. That's what I wanted to share with you this week. Um, I've got a couple of things in mind for future weeks, but I think I wanted to draw a line there. So um, as usual, the show notes are going to be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. If you'd like to talk to me about anything from today's episode, you know you can email me, podcast, at thepropertyvoice.net, and I'd be delighted to hear from you. But I guess all that remains to be said this week is thanks very much for listening once again uh, to this week's Property Voice podcast. And until next time, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.